Hi, you're listening to the Full Stack Educator Podcast. We provide relevant resources to new and aspiring independent school leaders to help you grow, succeed at work, and have a positive impact on the lives of students. I'm Michael. And I'm Matt. On this podcast, we have insightful conversations with leaders from across all areas of independent school education. The Southern Association of Independent Schools welcomed Deborah Wilson as the new president of the association in 2019. Deborah is an accomplished attorney and served as general counsel to the National Association of Independent Schools for nearly two decades. We connected with Deborah last month to ask her about how to manage legal issues. We also asked her about the impact of COVID-19 on independent schools and what decisions SAIS schools will face in the coming years. Let's listen as Michael kicks things off. Deborah, we're so grateful that you're with us today. Uh, I know you've probably got a whole lot going on and a lot of people reaching out to you, um, but we're really grateful to have you on the show today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here at an unprecedented time to think about different risk issues for schools. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we'd love to start uh, by just asking if you could tell us a bit about yourself and your journey within education. Sure. So I actually went to an independent school. I went to the Williams School in New London, Connecticut um, for 7th through 12th grade. And then I proceeded on to college. I went to the University of the South, actually known as Swanee. And then I lived in D.C. for a bit. And then I worked for a law firm and went to the University of South Carolina for law school. Um, right outside of law school, I started working for the Attorney General's Honors Program at the Department of Justice in D.C., actually doing tax litigation. Um, to the extent that I have a wonky side, and some people would probably say it's not a small one, I, I actually really like policy work and, um, and regulatory work. Uh, regulatory work is sort of comforting in the legal field because oftentimes there actually is an answer but when I was working at DOJ, I realized that um, what I was much more interested in was impact. And you can certainly have impact working at DOJ, but it wasn't really the impact I was looking to have. So I really um, i am a big fan of self-interventions, really thinking about, you know, why, why are we here? What's the purpose behind the work that we do on a daily basis? And I'm actually from a, a pretty big education family. My parents were both first-generation college graduates. Um, my, my dad's parents, actually, neither one of them finished high school. Um, my grandmother started working in mills when she was 12, and my grandfather started working in mills when mm -hmm. he was 14. And um, they were both very committed to having all four of their children graduate from college. So, um, and my dad and all of the siblings did graduate from college and all of them went on to earn advanced degrees. And I don't know, part of the lesson that I grew up with was that education is sort of the, it, it's the, the ultimate vehicle for mobility, um, whether it's economic or social or what have you. So I really started looking at um, just chances in education yeah. where I could help and that's how I ended up at NEIS. I was the first attorney that NEIS hired, and um, I worked there for almost 19 years until last year when I became the president of the Southern Association of Independent Schools last July. That's great. I, I, I love the term that you shared there, self-intervention. Uh, could you tell us, what do you, what do you think are the most important legal issues that an independent school leader will face on the job? <laughs> yeah, the, the most important legal issues are whichever ones might be tripping you up in the next, you know, six months. Um, uh, <laughs> that the, makes uh, sense, yes. <laughs> you know, the most important ones are the pressing <laughs> ones. Um, no, you know, the, 
I, you know, I've shifted in my thinking about just legal issues in general over time. And I'm, I've become a much bigger fan of risk management. Um, and, okay. and it's actually something that I, I don't think people teach as well as they could, but it's just the process of saying, okay, what are the things that can affect the flight path of the school? Um, you know, when people think about risk management, they tend to go to the legal stuff first because it, it's compliance, which is often not very strategic. But, you know, the, the questions um, are, are usually around, you know, what could have the biggest impact on the organization and what's most likely to happen. So, you know, when you talk about legal issues, a lot of the things that you worry about aren't actually the ones that are most likely to happen. Um, but the basics are. So, you know, for school leaders, understanding what negligence looks like and what, what that uh-huh. means. So, and it's such a, a pretty basic concept, right? It's, um, are you upholding your duty? Are you upholding the standard of care to care for the children in your school um, or those that they come in contact with? Uh, same with people who visit on your campus. I and mean, it's, a, it's a pretty basic concept, but frankly, it's the thing that you're most likely to get sued for. And it often can tie into contract law as well, but it's, it's sort of just that baseline so when schools often talk about liability, a lot of times what they're talking about is negligence. So if you're traveling overseas with students, are you doing what you should be doing to make sure that they're cared for while they're you know, on that trip with you? So that's one of the most basic ones because it should be the filter for everything that you're doing with students. You know, are we meeting, what is that baseline standard and are we meeting it and are we doing it consistently across the school? It's a lot harder to do than it sounds, I think, but that's sort of the, the first filter. Um, the second one is, you know, employment has gotten, employment law has gotten so incredibly complex in our country. And for schools to get um, a firm understanding of that is, is a big one, particularly in times like these when schools might be thinking about reductions in force or other steps to reduce their employment pool when they're looking at uncertain future admissions pieces. So, you know, it's, I would start with that care of students, um, and care really covers a lot of ground, right? It covers that negligence piece if you're traveling with students, things like that, but it also carries things like prevention of abuse of students, um, all of those ins and outs. That employment piece is huge. And um, and then I would say that the next one is, you know, everything related to non-discrimination, um, because it's the right thing to do. It's consistent with our missions. I look at non-discrimination laws, and I, I really do think that um, they're the floor. So our schools should be going above and beyond what's expected in the non-discrimination laws, but schools should be really thinking about those, too, as a filter when they're acting. And then understanding the web of contracts that schools have, um, you know, so your employment contracts, your enrollment agreements, your school handbooks, your employment handbooks, all of those pieces kind of fit together to create the policy web under which schools need to operate. You mentioned non-discrimination. I'm going to go a little bit off our our questions here, if that's okay. Of course. Where do you see the the trouble brewing with non-discrimination, or, or where is it in the hiring process? Is it in the admissions process, or uh, or other areas where discrimination is likely to pop up? And and I say that because, with a few exceptions, I don't think any school would say that they're intentionally discriminating. Or I might be wrong about that. I will hope I'm wrong about that. Yeah. <laughs> or I hope I'm right about that. Where, uh, where does, where's the problem lie for discrimination? Actually, it's exactly the statement that you just made. Most schools are never intending to discriminate, um, and their policies and, and frankly, their, their, their mission driven approaches to things are, um, are working incredibly hard not to discriminate. 
but sometimes they don't look at um, what the overall effect of a policy might be, that it might be causing discrimination about which they're unaware, and then um, how they think about implicit bias in their own practices. So those are kind of two different effects. Um, okay. So, you know, if you look at this, this, you know, the virus that we're going through right now, and I know several people have spoken about this, um, so it's not all that original, but if you look at, um, you know, just the socioeconomic class of the people who might be laid off relative to just a change in services schools are providing. Um, and that's not a non-discrimination law, but it's, um, but it's, it's an effect on a certain class of people that our schools, I think, are thinking a lot about how do we, how do we bring more socioeconomic diversity into our schools in different ways, yeah. whether it's through employment or through um, financial aid that we give, things like that. So I, um, that one schools I think are, are very aware of as they're making their decisions right now, but it's just when you're looking at the policies that you're implementing, what are the overall effects and are they triggering potential non-discrimination laws? So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the, how do we step back and, and hold up an honest mirror to ourselves? Um, some of it you can see in uh, pay practices too. I encourage schools to, you know, just every few years, just get your employment numbers visited by a third party to see if, um, you know, in some sort of bias has worked into how you're paying wages um, in terms of it can be what the starting salary is for people who are just beginning, um, what the raises are that have been given over time. And when you step back like every three or four years and get somebody to do an honest review of your salary, sometimes those can reveal that um, there's been discrimination uh, just coming in. You know, as we all know, uh, women are still paid less than men uh, in the same positions. So, right. um, you know, it helps for helps for schools to have a gut check on those kinds of things. That's excellent advice. So if you could imagine an aspiring leader, somebody who is you know, likely going to be moving up in a leader, into a leadership role in the next couple of years, and they want to learn more about legal issues, uh, what are the best places to go to beef up on their understanding and knowledge? You know, I think it's, it's just to kind of keep reading as you go. And, you know, ISM, I think, puts out a lot of good work on this. NEIS puts out a lot of good work on this. Um, if you're looking at the NEIS kind of legal archives, there's one, and it's it's kind of a compendium, and it's it's about federal laws, and it's uh, you know federal laws that apply to all independent schools and those that are triggered by receipt of federal financial assistance. Um, I think I helped create the first version of that maybe 15 years ago now, and you know it's been kept updated over time, and it and it works kind of hand in glove with another piece that talks about specific federal programs that trigger those uh, obligations. It's just a really good um, just compendium of what those non-discrimination laws look like. There's also a really good piece that NEIS has on the Americans with Disabilities Act, which plays uh, a, a big part in our sure, schools, yeah. both in the employment piece and the student piece. But kind of keeping yeah. your eyes open, there's also there's a really good one that, uh, that NEIS did. Uh, we did it with United Educators on risk management and how to think about risk management. You know, in good programs uh, like the Klingenstein program, uh, for for teachers uh, and sort of administrators, also does a legal course, which I'll be participating in this summer. And it's kind of a, just a good overview. So you're picking things up as you go. But I think the, the most effective training is almost on the job. So 
if you're a teacher or you're an administrator and the school is facing an issue, to to do the tabletop kind of run through of, you know, how could we have done that better? And when we talk about liability, what is it that we're worried about? Um, and to talk that through, you know, with your colleagues, you, we learn so much from each other and just about how to think through some of these things. And, and it's probably the best on the job training of how to think about risk in real life scenarios. At one point in time, I sat on a crisis management committee for a school and um, we, we did a good job of walking it back from some of the ridiculous crisis scenarios that might come up to some of the more, you know, realistic scenarios that come up. But I was interested when you said spending more time talking about negligence. I wondered that thinking back that our time would have been better doing that, what you hinted at, self-intervention in terms of negligence <laughs> and discrimination. Yeah. Um, would you say that's fair? Is it better to spend time talking about where we might be trying to identify our blind spots? Yeah, I um, ab absolutely. So I, I think it helps for schools to, I mean, I'm a big fan of prevention. Um, I, don't, I don't mind a crisis. I've, I've dealt with a lot of them over time, but it's much more interesting to think from the front end about, you know, as you mentioned this year with your crisis team, and it's really easy to think about the crazy stuff. Um, so if you're mapping that yeah. out on a heat map, right, you have one axis that's likelihood and another axis that's um, impact, you know, the impact of something crazy might be high, but the likelihood of it happening is pretty small. So, you know, kind of figuring out those pieces that you can control and saying, okay, what are the expectations and how do we prevent those things? Um, is so much more helpful on the front end before you're in a crisis to really um, kind of pick it apart. And it's just better, in my experience, it's better to do it in a group. Um, I'm pretty creative by myself, but I'm not half as creative as um, a group of us together are sort of thinking through those things. And a lot of it, it is, it is that basic. Um, and then you get into, so how do we mitigate these things? So like if it's travel with students, mm -hmm. some of it is making sure the parents understand the risk and that they're um, entering into informed consent when they're talking about waivers and consent to participate in trips. You know, you have different tools to get to use to help the school offset some of those risks. And so I think talking through that in a smart way and really understanding what, what kind of risk management you're putting together for different uh, situations really helps because it gives you words and it lets you call it out. One of the things that comes to my mind as you're, as you're saying that is, okay, I love that idea of having a risk management, sitting around the table talking about that in terms of scenarios or just in general with the school. But I'm also nervous about doing that without a lawyer present. Right. Uh, is there value to doing this without legal counsel in the room? Yeah, I mean, it just depends on what you're talking about. Um, okay. You know, so if you're talking about a trip, most of the time, you know, if you're talking about risks on a trip, I mean, those risks are pretty well known um, before you even go, right? So, you know, if you know that there's a risk about ziplining in Costa Rica, so what steps do you take to, you know, to offset that risk? You know, you'll investigate the third party vendor, you'll have a group like GBG, Global Education Benchmark Group, you know, and they'll provide you with backgrounds on different groups that schools have used. Um, you have waivers with parents, you make sure the third party is sure, you know, you, you do all of the things, right? Do you need an attorney to talk you through some of those things? Uh, you know, maybe it just depends on the size of the risk, but but a lot of that is is pretty normal. Um, schools will, like, say you're doing a security audit of your campus, they will have an attorney hire the person to do the security audit, and and then okay. the school meets with the attorney to talk through the security audit because not all of those recommendations will be, you know, culture and mission appropriate. Um, sure, and then, yeah. 
and that kind of an exchange might might be better with an attorney. You know, most attorneys are happy to talk with you on the front end when you say, look, you know, we're looking at this level of risk management and they can help you think about where do you really need an attorney to be part of that conversation and, and where is it a little bit more run of the mill running a business. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so say you are, you're learning on the job, what resources should be on my speed dial and what resources should be in my top desk drawer? Yeah. Um, it's probably all on our desktops now, right? The, uh, you know, there's a, well, true. Yeah. there's a compendium, um, it's called like private school law or something. I think that's kind of helpful. Mostly what yeah. you need is, um, some of those resources I mentioned before, you know, some of those compendiums that, um, we created when I was at NAIS and, ISM's got a bunch of resources too that I know are readily searchable and there are other pieces out there. But, you know, a lot of it comes down to having a good relationship with the school's legal counsel. Hopefully that person is somebody who's worked with independent schools for a while. Um, Usually they have a a good employment background because the relationship we have with students and their families, uh, just through the enrollment contract and the school handbook, they're very similar to that sort of employment paradigm of having employment contracts and employment handbooks. And, um, you know, with the non-discrimination laws and some other things, those, they, they mirror each other pretty well. And, um, you know, make sure you have a discount with your lawyer. I always ask for a discount with everything. They're nonprofits or educational institutions. You should go for that. But that you've got somebody who's not going to bill you for everything you ask in six-minute increments. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, particularly yeah. when you first start, if, you know, if you're a new head of school or you're a new associate head or you're the new dean of students, that, that you do have somebody that you can float things past. Um, and mentors always help too. They, what I find is that people new to leadership roles, whether it's in independent schools or almost anything, they, um, you, you, don't, you don't have a temperature yet for what's, what's really alarming and, and what's fairly run of the mill. Um, you know, so, so everything is going to kind of put you on edge for a little bit. And so it, it helps to have, you know, a mentor and or a, a good approachable mm. attorney just to talk some things through until you get your feet underneath you. So Deborah, you've given us some really great advice about um, things to be thinking about uh, to avoid having to uh, be in a, a bad situation. But let's suppose that an independent school leader finds themselves uh, needing an attorney. Um, what advice would you have for finding the right attorney for your school? Uh, what things should they be looking for and avoiding and what advice do you have about engaging with your attorney? Yeah, yeah. And so like I said, you know, somebody who's worked with schools before and public schools and private schools are two very different animals. So a public school attorney, they're fabulous, but they don't, um, they're looking at a lot of laws that are related very specifically to running public schools. So the Americans with Disabilities Act has two completely different sections that apply to public schools and private schools. So Having somebody that's actually worked with private schools, you know, whether independent schools or parochial schools, whatever, before um, is really helpful. That good, strong employment background is really useful. Um, and then, in, you know, and again, somebody who's not always going to bill you in, you know, six minute increments for every conversation that you have is helpful. In, right. terms, of, in terms of working with an attorney, um, I, had, I had a great attorney years ago who's now retired. And, and the way he put it was, he said, you know, you don't, you never want to ask an attorney to fix a leaky pipe. So when you're working with a lawyer, you don't want to just say, hey, would you draft an employment handbook for me? Um, because, you know, $20,000 later, you'll probably have some sort of <laughs> right. what you're looking for. Right. Um, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. And I know a lot of schools with pretty good sized budgets and nobody really wants to budget for that. 
you know, whatever you have to kind of take a first shot at it. Um, so I hate it when schools plug and chug, you know, they're using another school's forms or, or whatever. You never want to do that. You always want your attorney to look at it to make sure that it suits your school and your circumstances, but you can take something and, and start to tweak it or start to play with it or put in comments. And, you know, and those comments can be one of the things we're worried about is, you know, A, B, and C, you know, can you come up with language to do this? And that gives an attorney some direction. So they're not just sort of wandering around out there on their own for you. So, um, you know, whether it's, and, you know, and they can help you do things like have good contract templates to work with, you know, contractors coming in to do a variety of things. They can help you with technology contracts, those kinds of things. So, you know, that's the smart way to work with an attorney is, you know, to have something and to start marking it up. And, you know, it can be your employment handbook. Maybe you need a couple provisions in a few distinct areas and ask them to specifically focus on those. You never just want to set an attorney loose because, you, you never know what they're going to come back with. And a good attorney will flag that for you before they start, right? They'll say, okay, I just want to make sure I understand the scope of what I'm doing. And that's, that's really what you want to have a, a conversation about. That's wonderful. Uh, you mentioned the importance of finding an attorney with experience in independent schools. Do you know if NAIS or SAIS maintain lists of, of attorneys with that experience? You, you know, I did this fascinating thing years ago and it, it's hard to keep up, but um and, I, and we'll probably do this again at SAIS. I, I actually asked all the schools for the attorneys that they used in all of the different states. So, it, you know, there's some key independent school attorneys. Um, they're pretty easy to find, you know, who do a lot of work with a lot of schools. But I've also found that schools around the country, you know, they, they work with more local attorneys who might work with three or four independent schools. And that's really fine. You know, that's um, they're going to be less expensive than national firms most of the time. And, and a lot of what they do is, is, you know, is pretty standard. And if they're staying on top of things, then they, you know, they understand the ins and outs of what they're doing. Um, I don't think NEIS has done anything like that since I've left. And I know that I have not seen that with SEIS. But, um, you know, a lot of it is, you know, talking to your state or regional association or just reaching out to other schools in your region and saying, you know, hey, I'm looking for an attorney, particularly when it's local work. So, you know, if you're talking about real estate transactions or floating a bond or something like that, the, the yeah. local independent schools or even sometimes your local banker will have really good suggestions on that front. What about the role of an attorney on the school's board? Uh, what, what are good uses for an attorney who is on the board of directors or board of trustees? And what are places that you feel like would not be an appropriate use of, of an attorney on the board? Yeah, I am. Um, whenever I've served on a school board and I've done it a few times, I've always said I'm the most expensive board member out there because I love to raise issues, but I don't want to solve any of them. Because, <laughs> um, you know, for me, it's a conflict of interest if you're serving on a board and you're providing legal advice. Um, okay. It doesn't mean that I won't look at stuff and, you know, and flag things like, Hey, this, this language should be revisited or you should get your trying to look at this. Um, but I, I, I've never loved that model of the school's legal counsel being on the board and I've seen it come up in some pretty good governance meltdowns. You know, yeah, I've seen a school before where like the founder of the school was a lawyer and then also oh, no. served on the board afterwards. Wow. And what could possibly go wrong there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, get pretty, you, you can get pretty wrapped around the axle when those come up. So, um, and, and I wish I could say that just happened once, but I'm, I'm sure, oh, wow. yeah, that was years ago. I'm sure that there's at yeah. least three or four others going on right now that look exactly like that. So, 
Um, you know, and it's hard. I think, you know, when you're on a board and you've got a skill set, you want to provide it yeah. to, to the nonprofit. But I, I just, I don't, I don't love that model. I think. It's sure. Well, and I'm thinking more in a, a very small um, or maybe up and coming school that is very fortunate to have a lawyer on the board who's also a parent, who's also an alum. <laughs> also, right, right, this, right. This could go badly very quickly. Yeah, which, you know, what, I mean, what they, what they can do, and this can get messy too, but it's, um, you know, if, if they have a colleague who will write off some time to um, do some service to those schools. So, so easy ones can be. Um, sure, yeah, or someone even at their firm. Yeah, yeah, if like you're refinancing a loan or something like that, those don't tend to be high political things. So if you've got somebody who's going to write off time for that, that's a little bit easier. Um, you know, so just when it's when you start to get into employment issues or, or any of those places where you're inviting the board into more of an operational role, it, it just gets complex if that um, person also happens to be. Yeah. So coronavirus, uh, it's raised a number of legal concerns for schools. What are some of the top legal issues you're seeing schools face as a result of COVID-19? Yeah, you know, um, you know, it's hard, this being as close to, to this topic as we all are right now, like it's almost hard to step back with sort of an appraising eye. Um, I think one of the hardest things about it is and, you know, I've been drafting some some different pieces sort of around teleworking policies and that kind of thing is anything that you would normally draft, which would be good practices, they sort of get a twist with coronavirus. So, you know, if you have people telework, there's some pretty standard policies you want into place. And I know a lot of schools have been working to, to get them into place. You know, what's, you know, and what's appropriate for the safety of students, you know, what's the school expecting. But, um, you know, like one of those basics is you know teleworking should never take the place of childcare. Well, it's a pretty hard policy to have in place right now because everybody's at home with their kids because all the schools are closed, which is why we're doing what we're doing. So, you know, I think I think the one of the hardest thing about this is is how how close to pretty good can you be um, in light of the situation that we're in. So, you know, what I'm encouraging schools to do, you know, particularly with telework policies. Um, you know, even things like, you know, a lot of distance learners would say, well, you know, kids shouldn't be doing, you know, video classes in their bedrooms. Well, you know, if you live in a 1200 square foot house and three kids and two parents are all home trying to work at the same time, not having a student in their bedroom is a pretty hard one to follow. So, right. you know, a lot of schools I think are doing the best they can and it might not look the way that they would love it to be, but it is sort of what it is. You know, so one of schools should be looking at good policies and getting good things in place. I mean, God bless them. I, I love that I'm getting disciplined calls about students. You know, they're doing inappropriate avatars or they've figured out how to lock their their teachers out of Zoom rooms and all kinds of things like that because it it just reminds me of the resilience of the human spirit. Um, it just makes me smile and laugh. So, so, kids will be know, kids no matter what, right? Well, I mean, and it does. Yeah. It just makes me feel better to know. I mean, yeah, it, it just it makes me happy to know that the shenanigans are still going on out there. So, yeah, you know, so, so schools should be filling in with the policies they need to meet the situation, recognizing that it's not going to be pretty. Um, I think what's going to be really hard is we're coming up with we're coming up against a lot of very quick drafting at the state and federal government levels. So, you know, um, Congress just passed a big bill and President Trump just signed it. 
that's going to be a huge bailout, $2 trillion, and private schools are eligible um, thanks to the Council of American Private Education um, and the big push that they and a lot of our colleagues have done. Um, private schools are going to be eligible for some of that money, but there's um, to take out loans and to help meet uh, employment needs and things like that. But there's going to be a lot of um, hoops that schools are going to have to jump through, and there's going to have to be a lot of tracking of expenses and things like that as um, yeah. more and more of this funding becomes available. And that's that's going to be tricky when the federal and state governments move fast. The way they draft is not always as clear as it might be. Um, and so that's going to be hard. On the state level, you'll see those kinds of unemployment shifts, you know, just in terms of who's eligible and what that might look like. Um, mm. And then you'll also see a lot related to waivers for distance learning and that kind of thing. So, you know, schools are going to have to be on their game. Happily, there's a lot of smart people tracking those pieces, writing about those pieces. Um, I know Venable has done a lot of work. Fisher Phillips has done a lot of work. Uh, Schwartz Hannum, these are all law firms. And then uh, NEIS has um, a good page on legal resources on that front too. So tracking all of those things, but also working with your lawyer to make sure you know exactly what you need um, if you're going to be getting some of that financial relief. That, uh, that, that, that's a lot of really good information. It's a lot to wrap, wrap one's mind around. Um, I'm grateful <laughs> that there are so many yeah. people it, working on it. It'll be longer it. next week, I'm sure. Um, yeah. It's, it's a pretty quick moving target. I, I would say too, you know, understanding what it's going to take for schools to participate in um, some of these bailouts. And I do think some of our schools are going to need the bailouts. It's going to be really important. Yeah. I, I also think we've never seen a time like this um, in the living memory of most of the people in this country. I, you know, when I'm hearing people talk about risk or some of the things they're worried about, but we're, we're in a little bit of a, of a time of not quite all bets are off, but I think, you know, people are going to have to give each other a lot of grace. You know, I'm hearing schools worried about parents suing them under enrollment contracts. And, and what I'm hoping is, is that as a country and as a community, we can all, you know, sort of dig in um, and, and be kind to one another and understand the incredible duress that, that everyone is under, including our sector. Yeah, uh, this is getting into the realm of religion and politics. <laughs> Goddamn, but... And I am completely ignorant of where um, schools can apply for part of the bailout money. But, you know, the old, the old argument against uh, vouchers is that eventually those vouchers will come with strings attached. Do you see the possibility of these bailouts coming with strings attached? The, the joy of shifting from my old job to my current job is I'm not the one weeding through the 800 pages or whatever has come out of Congress um, ah. in the yeah. office. So I, I, know, I know some folks are, are weeding through that right now. The, um, when you have loans that are generally repaid over time, that generally doesn't turn into a, a voucher or a tie. And it is why sure. that, um, yeah. that sort of triggering federal financial assistance piece uh, that I mentioned that NEIS has is um, important to understand that. And the reason that longer document exists that goes through federal laws that apply and then federal laws when you take federal financial assistance, because schools, I think, should understand there's already a lot of federal laws you have to follow anyway. And so if your choice is between your school closing and, um, you know, having to create a position that coordinates rights under Title IX and, you know, disability laws, you're probably better doing the latter than you are doing the former. Um, but schools have to do that on their own risk assessments, right? Are they, 
Are they in a position um, where it makes sense for them to do that? And a lot of times it's just for a period of time. Like I said, I haven't haven't read the legislation yet, so I don't know what it looks like. And obviously, if states put in um, programs for schools, then that's going to be different, too. And they're going to want to make sure that they understand the strings related to that. You know, as always, as a lawyer, I would be remiss in saying, you know, read the fine print before you sign on the dotted line. Um, but <laughs> but I, I, I do think we're going to have to sign on some dotted lines, at least in some parts of the industry. You mentioned NAIS and a few other um, organizations and individuals, but are there any other uh, maybe repositories of information uh, related specifically to COVID-19 that you'd recommend people looking into? Yeah, you know, we have, uh, so SAIS, if you go to SAIS.org backslash coronavirus, um, we've kept the bulk of our resources completely open on this and we update it regularly. It's a pretty good repository. We pull from a lot of different places. Uh, The Enrollment Management Association has a lot of resources out there. Um, I know Atlas, which is for technology leaders, has a good number of resources out there. NAIS, um, obviously, I know the National Business Officers Association has been working a lot on business continuity and what do those business models look like going forward. So any of those are, are great places to go. Um, the state and regional associations tend to be kind of covering both fronts a little bit and what they're collecting. So they'll have sort of some state and regional organization type information you're going to need. So, you know, if your state is doing specific things on um uh, waiving uh, limitations on distance learning, they're they're more likely to have that than the national associations. So um, I think it's it's good to kind of cover cover the waterfront on, on those pieces. Wonderful. We'll put uh, links to a lot of what you just mentioned in the show notes as well. Um, so could you briefly tell our listeners, uh, especially the ones from the south, about uh, SAIS and resources that they might be interested in, not not just specifically related to COVID nineteen, but just in general. Sure. So um, SAIS is the Southern Association of Independent Schools. We have almost 400 schools, including um, a fair number in Mexico, one in Honduras, one in St. Martin, the schools uh, in other parts of the country outside of the South. And if you look at our website, we have a lot on the coronavirus, but we also um, have been building up our resources more to support schools, you know, particularly in areas that might be difficult uh, in terms of compliance. So one of the sections we're working on right now is around uh, training for staff around prevention of sex abuse in schools. We have uh, sort of newly expanded criteria on that from about a year and a half ago that we're working on uh, resources, particularly for schools looking at how do we work with younger students to understand how to prevent sex abuse and how to talk with kids about that. And um, we do a lot with data. We have uh, Jeff Mitchell's head of Curry Ingram Academy just outside of Nashville, and he does these great fast staff, stats reports for us. Um, hmm. So he'll, he'll look at different trends in um, sort of industry applicable areas. Well, so it could be under, um, you know, employment and pay equity or changes in benefits over time across our industry and across our region. Uh, We have actually two newsletters that schools, anybody can subscribe to. You don't have to be an SEIS member. One is our e-newsletter that we send out once a month. And then another one is something we call Quick Links. So it's a curation of articles from across education, usually with a couple entertaining pieces thrown in that, um, you know, we send out. I think e-newsletter goes out the beginning of every month and Quick Links goes out the middle of every month. So 
um, you can easily go and, and poke around and uh, you can see our accreditation process too, which is a little different than other organizations. We, we have a compliance pre-visit that we do, but most of our accreditation is actually around the school strategic plan and how do we help and support schools as you know, they're growing for the future. What is it that they're looking to do and how can we help them get there? So what, what challenges do you see uh, in the next five to 10 years? Um, I think our biggest challenge will be keeping tuitions low. Uh, the SAS membership, we're actually very fortunate in that our tuitions tend to be lower than most of the rest of the country. And so our enrollments have tended to stay pretty strong. Schools in rural areas tend to have a harder time keeping enrollment up than other areas just because the demographics are working against them in some pockets. But, but across the board, our tuitions do tend to be lower than they are in other parts of the country. And our, our growth uh, relative to the other parts of the country is also huge. Um, we're, we tend to be where people are moving. Um, you know, I, I live just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, and my younger sister lives in New York. It's, it's awfully nice to be quarantined when it's 75 degrees outside and not um, where it's raining in 45. So <laughs> we, sure. we have a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so I do think um, those are real opportunities for us. But, but the challenge is keeping, keeping that tuition low um, and while also, you know, taking, taking steps to make sure that, um, you know, we're, we're growing and changing with the times that we're, um, you know, really, really aware of the opportunities that we have and meeting the needs of people as they move from other parts of the country. And in fact, the world, we have um, a lot of the South has more companies that are coming here from around the world. Um, you know, so Charleston obviously has Boeing, but we also have Volvo and Mercedes. The state in South Carolina has BMW. We have a school up there that um, has now about 10% of their students come from other countries, which has been a big shift over the last 10 years. So, wow. yeah, no, it's, um, so I, I think the South is, it's an exciting place to be now generally, and it's a really exciting place for independent schools, but that, that challenge of keeping our tuitions in check and make sure that we, we don't, we don't meet those tipping points in, um, in pricing is going to be, that's going to be a real challenge for us going forward. You know, if you if you buy the theory that you know people are comfortable with about 10% of their income being used for education expenses, then that's all in, right? All kids. Um, so if you're charging $30,000 a year and you've got a family of three and that's 90 grand a year, that's a pretty serious income if you're talking 10%. Um, you know, so I, you know, you just have to, and Mark Mitchell actually does a, at NES does a great sort of talk about this of, you know, at, at what percentage, um, and I think it's about, you need at least 15%, pretty sure that's what he said, it's either 15 or 20% of the local population to be able to afford what you're selling in order to be in a healthy market for your school. And so when you're looking at the income for your area, are you outpacing that or not? Um, mm. You know, you always have to keep an eye on on that dashboard and say, where where are we there? So, you know, once you've raised the price, that only, you know, say five to eight percent can actually reasonably afford your tuition, then you're either going to be heavily funding everybody else, or, you know, if your competition, charter schools, magnet schools, other independent schools, start eating your lunch, then you're going to find yourself in trouble pretty quickly. Well, um, we end each podcast by asking our guests uh, 
the same three questions, which are what should people be reading? What should people be listening to? And how can people connect with you? <laughs> sure. What should people be reading? Um, I have to admit, today is a Sunday. I have not read either the local paper or the New York Times. Um, and I'm like rereading a spy novel because it just puts my brain at rest right now in this time nice. of stress. So yeah, good. Um, I, I highly recommend reading something that has nothing to do with anything that is going on <laughs> right now. That's great um, advice. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's just, yeah. we all, we all need a break from time to time. And I, um, I'm not only not immune to that, but I, I embrace it pretty wholeheartedly. But um you know, I'm a, I'm a Simon Sinek fan. He's actually doing something interesting in the month of April here, 2020. Um, he's on LinkedIn. He's doing kind of a book club on his book, uh, Start With Why. And um, so I'm, I'm picking that up and rereading that. I haven't read it for a while because I do think with this reset, we're all going to be going back to a little bit of back to basics. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're going to be looking at why why do we exist? Why do we do some of the things we do? And, you know, while many of us are grieving what we've lost through this process, I do think we have to um, sort of reorient ourselves to, to what have we gained um, and what do we not want to lose when we transition back to whatever the new normal is. Um, so I'm, I'm reading spy novels, but I'm also starting to read Simon Sinek, Start With Why. Um, what should people be listening to? I'm, I'm a big fan of podcasts while I walk the dog. Um, I listen to New York Times Daily quite a bit. I also listen to Future You, um, which is Jeff Slingo and Michael Horn. They actually did a great podcast not too long ago on the, with the gentleman who is the president of Tufts. I mean, not Tufts. Um, Tulane during Katrina, um, which I thought was a really interesting interview there. Um, they're kind of, they're always sort of looking ahead to their horizon. And, um, and there are a couple others that I listen to too, but those, those tend to be where, where I start. Um, how can people connect with me? You can always reach me at Deborah, D-B-R-A at S-E-I-S.org. The website has my phone numbers too. Um, as, as at NEIS, I, I'm always happy to talk to people who are not S-E-I-S members. I used to talk to NEIS non-members all the time. It's kind of how I, I know a little bit more about what's happening in the world and, you know, my self-intervention was designed to get me in a place where I could help people who are trying to do good work in an industry that has impact. So um, that's what I'm here to do. So I'm always happy to help folks who are looking for answers or, or maybe direction if I know some folks who can be useful. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today, Deborah. You've uh, given us a whole lot of really great information and I'm sure our listeners are going to thoroughly enjoy uh, everything you've had to share with us today. Excellent. Well, thank you all so much for having me. And um, like I said, if I can do anything, I'm here to help. So just um, don't ever hesitate to let me know. Thank you for listening to the Full Stack Educator podcast. We hope that today's conversation helped you grow as an independent school leader. Be sure to check out our show notes for links to resources mentioned in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate it, leave a review, and share it with a friend. Episodes of this podcast are released bi-weekly. You can follow and engage with Matt McGee and Michael Amusio on LinkedIn.